Pastor Tim Van Lowell has been a friend of Graham Community Church for many years. And um, he has served as a youth pastor, missionary in Japan, a senior pastor, uh, currently serves as pastor of outreach for South Church. Uh, pastor and Mrs. Van Lowell, thank you for being with us today. Let's pray now as Tim comes. Let's be praying that God would use his word to speak to our hearts. Thanks, man. Thanks, brother. Oh, good morning, Graham Church. It's my uh, privilege and blessing to be with you today, and uh, I love you. And uh, we all miss Mike. I, I visited his grave yesterday for the first time since he was uh, buried and had a good cry and uh, played uh, a City of Light song that was played at his funeral. Uh, so we grieve together in these last 16 months. A lot has happened. I thank my wife for coming with me today. It's a blessing. Uh, she doesn't usually come with me. We care for her parents. And her mom has dementia now, and so she is usually at home on the Zoom for our ABC that I lead, and then uh, streaming in the services, except when she shows up to do the faith stories, which she did for Catherine last September, I think that was, right? Yeah, and I understand she did that here, uh, Catherine did that here as well afterwards, so thank you for coming with me today. Well, I was 12 years old when my family moved from... Minneapolis, to the farm in southwestern Minnesota. And the saying that you can take the boy out of the city, but not the city out of the boy, is true in more ways than one. The farm can be a dangerous place if you don't know what you're doing, especially during harvest time when you're trying to get the crops out of the fields as quickly as possible. Being new to farm life, my brother and I were exploring and experimenting with different ways to goof off. I don't know how many of you are familiar with, oops, I want to go back, with the gravity wagon. How many of you are familiar with the gravity wagon? This has, as you can see on the slide, three sides that slant down and one side that's flat with a door at the bottom. And you uh, load up that thing in the field you bring it home or into town, wherever you're going, and if you're coming home, you're going to bring it to an auger that's going to bring it up to the top of the silo. And I don't know if you know this, but if you get inside that thing while it's emptying, it can be a lot of fun. And the corn or soybeans, whatever it is, coming out of the field, for some reason it's warm. And on those crisp fall days... Man, that could be a lot of fun for a 5th and a 7th grader to mess around. And so we'd get in there, and uh, we would go down with it as it went down, and as it went down, it would suck us in farther and farther, and then we'd climb back out, and then we'd suck in farther and farther. Well, one day, I got sucked in too far, and I couldn't climb out. And the thing was still full, and my uh, brother hollered to my grandpa, who was on the outside monitoring the grain coming out, and my grandpa said, can he hold on? 
And I said, yeah, I'm holding on. I was holding on to the side. I, got, I said, I got it. And I could hold on until I couldn't. And then I went under. And in my mind, this whole scenario that I'm going to explain here took place like that. In reality, I, I, I don't know how long it took, but I went under. My brother hollered to my grandpa. He grabbed that wheel that you can grab, that wheel that you can see there. He started cranking it, opened it all the way up. Whatever was inside started pouring out all over the place. He reached in, somehow found my leg, grabbed it, pulled me out, and saved my life. However, it left a big mess, which he wasn't very happy about. It's like, man, you saved my life. You should be happy about that. <laughs> he yelled at me, sent me back into the house, said, get out of here. This is not the first time I preached today's message, and please, so please don't think that I share this illustration solely because of the circumstances we find ourselves in here today as Ed Graham. As I thought about what God would have me share with you today, these thoughts that I've shared elsewhere came back to mind as being especially relevant to what we are facing right now. So when we talk about finding ourselves overwhelmed, in over our heads, surrounded by a big mess, I'm keenly aware that this is how many, most, if not all of us, are feeling right now. But we aren't left to deal with these circumstances without any kind of guidance. The Bible is profitable and applicable across all cultures, times, peoples, places, and it has more than enough direction for how we can face today's circumstances. The question isn't so much, what does the Bible say about this, as much as, are we going to follow what the Bible says? Brothers and sisters, we're the, we are the people of God. We're not people of the world. We serve the King of kings and Lord of lords, as we sang about this morning. Jesus is our Savior. We are his church, his bride, his people. This is a church. It is a church. It's not a club or a business. It's a beautiful manifestation of the wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places who are watching Graham this morning to see how the church responds. So how are we going to survive when we are going under? To answer that question, I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 37. This psalm is unique among all the psalms. Normally we think of the psalms as a book of prayers or a book of songs. This psalm is not a prayer. Here we find words of instruction that when read together as God's people, we are implicitly acknowledging our agreement and our commitment not only to hear, but to heed these words. To speak the instruction of this psalm is to sign up to live a life 
in accord with what the psalm proclaims. So, for example, when I join with the church of Christ in declaring, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart, I affirm that I believe this blessing, and I commit myself to live as one who finds his delight in the Lord and looks to him to satisfy the desires of my heart as only he can. So let's read together verses 1 through 9 with that perspective in mind. We are declaring that we agree with what it says. We are committing to live our lives in such a way that they align with the instructions in the psalm because we believe that what it says is true, God-honoring, and in all of our best interest. So will you read aloud together this psalm with me? Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land." Will you pray with me? Our Father, we come to you today with open hearts to hear what you have from your word. May the words of my heart, the words of my mouth, and the meditations of my heart, God, as they are expressed this morning, be pleasing in your sight. And all God's people said, amen. I find in this psalm three sets of contrasting pairs. So let's look at them one by one. The first contrasting pair I see is the two kinds of people described in the psalm. They are righteous people and wicked people. Right off the bat, in verse 1, we find both of these people. Here, the righteous are inferred as the people for whom this psalm is written. It's a psalm of David. They are the yourself there at the beginning. And then we immediately find the other kind of people here described as evildoers. So throughout the psalm, whenever you see any form of the word you, it's describing people who are righteous. All the way through, the righteous stand in stark contrast with the wicked. Now it's important to note before we look at this description of the righteous and the wicked, why the righteous are righteous and why the wicked are wicked. Once again, this is a psalm of David written to a people, David's people, the people in his kingdom. And it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 when God called Abraham. At that time, he was living in Haran. He was a pagan. He was an idol worshiper. 
And he called this guy to be his own person. And through him, bless the world. Through descendants and land, neither of which he had at that time. Years later, God's going to call out another group of people from another land called Egypt. And he's going to rescue them and bring them out of Egypt into his land by way of a little detour for 40 years because of their disobedience. But in that detour, at the beginning of that time in the wilderness, there is a renewal of their covenant relationship with God. You see, Galatians 3, 6 says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham's righteousness was not his own righteousness. It was given to him by God. And so it was with the people hundreds of years later. As they align themselves with God's covenant and promise to be subject to him, to Yahweh God, they become righteous. Not because they are perfect, they are far from it. And God gives a whole set of things to do when you're not perfect. You can read about it in Leviticus, which I'm wading through in my devotions right now. So, The recipients of this psalm weren't righteous because of what they did. They weren't righteous because they did what this psalm said. That's not what made them righteous. They lived out the psalm because they had been made righteous by God. And it's much the same for us today. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 describe us as being dead in our sins, separated from God, alienated from him, following our own evil desires along with the rest of the world. And then we come to verse 4 in Ephesians chapter 2. My favorite but in the Bible. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace to kindness in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're not saved by what we do, but because of what God, through Jesus Christ, has already done for us. We are saved by grace through faith. As a result, we can live out the intention that God has for us when he created us. We can walk in the way that God created for us. Now, by way of contrast, the wicked described in this psalm includes anyone and everyone today who has not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There are only two kinds of people, righteous and wicked, saved and unsaved. If you're here today and you've never repented of your sins and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then the description of the wicked in this psalm is a description of you. Now that may sound harsh, but in reality, it's the description of everyone 
was born into this world and are not in Christ. It would still be the description of the saved as well, of every single one of us in this room, if it were not for Christ. But God. So I invite you today, if you are here and this is hitting you, right where you are, you can repent of your sins and put your faith and trust in the only one who can make you righteous. So as we look at the rest of the psalm, let's keep that perspective in mind. This is not a gutted out, try hard approach to life. Those who have been saved are in Christ and have the power of the Holy Spirit inside of them. And this psalm is describing that the way that the Holy Spirit transformed and led person lives out their life of faith in God. So let's scan through the rest of the psalm quickly and, and look at the descriptors. Let's first look at the descriptors of evildoers, wrongdoers. Uh, that's how they're described in, wor- in verse 1. The, they're wicked people who do evil. Verse 7 says, wicked people carry out evil devices, or as the NIV and in, 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 uh, New Living Translation put it, they're wicked schemes. Verse 12, wicked people plot against the righteous. They gnash their teeth at them. Verse 21 Verse 14, wicked people attack the righteous. Verse 21, wicked people borrow but don't return. Verse 32, wicked people try to kill the righteous. By way of contrast, notice the description of the righteous and what their life looks like. Verse 1, righteous people don't fret over evildoers, nor are they envious of wrongdoers. Verse 3, righteous people trust in the Lord and do good. Verse 4, righteous people delight themselves in the Lord. Verse 5, righteous people commit their way to the Lord. Verse 7, righteous people are still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. And don't fret when wicked people prosper in their evil. Verse 8, righteous people refrain from anger and forsake wrath. They don't fret because they know it leads to evil. Verse 21, righteous people are generous and giving. Verse 27, righteous people turn away from evil and do good. Verse 28, righteous people practice justice. Verse 30, righteous people speak wisely and justly. Verse 31, righteous people have the law of God in their hearts. Verse 34, righteous people, this is one of the hardest ones, I think, wait for the Lord and keep his way. What a contrast. Six descriptors of the practice of the wicked, 12 the practice of the righteous, and they couldn't stand in starker contrast with one another. In summary, wicked oppress and take, while righteous empower and give. Trust in the Lord. Don't fret. Do good. Don't be envious. Delight in the Lord. Be satisfied with him. Don't become angry. Commit your way to the Lord. Let him act. Don't resort to evil. Be still and wait patiently for the Lord and his timing. This leads us to the next contrasting pair. 
two perspectives. And the two perspectives are the perspective of the righteous and the perspective of the wicked. The righteous are focused on God and the eternal. The wicked are focused on themselves and the temporal. If we as the righteous take on the perspective of the wicked and focus on all that is happening around us, that only leads to fretting, envying, impatience, anger, wrath, and evil. Because the horizontal perspective without the vertical perspective makes it seem like the wicked are prospering, getting away with all their evil. This horizontal perspective, if that's all you look at, it's going to suck you down. It's going to kill you spiritually, emotionally, physically, psychologically, even physically. Now, we can't avoid the horizontal perspective. This is where we live. It's what we see happening around us. But we can overshadow it with the vertical perspective. The vertical perspective is one that trusts in the Lord, delights in the Lord, commits one's way to the Lord, is still and waits for the Lord. Trust, delight, commit, wait. In other words, keep your eyes on the Lord. Like Peter, that night in the boat, when they were in the middle of the storm, And Jesus comes walking on the water, and they're afraid. And Jesus calls out, don't be afraid, it's I. And Peter says, if it's really you, tell me to get out of the boat and walk to you. What an impetuous thing to say. Who would say something like that but Peter? And Jesus says, come on. And he hops out of the boat, he starts walking on the water, and he's doing fine until when? Yeah, he looks around, he takes his eyes off Jesus. He begins to sink, and he calls out, save me, and Jesus reaches out. He's always there. Now, the other righteous, the other aspect of the righteous versus wicked perspective deals with timing. The wicked live in the temporal, the here and now. The righteous are focused on the eternal. The wicked have no hope in the eternal, but the righteous will be vindicated in the eternal. This is especially true in our day and age because when this psalm was written, they had a special covenant relationship with God. More of a tit-for-tat type thing. If you obey God and keep his covenant, he's going to bless you beyond your wildest dreams. Your barns are going to be filled with overflowing. You'll be prosperous and so forth. But if you don't, off you go. That's exactly what happened. But that's not how we live. That's not the period of time we experience today. Today, evil people do prosper. They get away with it, seemingly. Some of them until they die. But I guarantee you this. They don't have that deep down satisfaction that only Christ can bring. I think it was Rockefeller that was asked, how much money is enough? To which he said, only a little bit more. The things of this world can never satisfy. The wicked may appear on the outside to be living it up and prospering by oppressing the righteous, but in reality there is a longing in their hearts that can never be satisfied by this kind of life. There's an emptiness and hopelessness that never goes away but only becomes deeper and stronger 
And it can only be temporarily covered, but then that covering evaporates and they only want more. That leads us to the last contrasting pair of these two prospects. The prospect of the wicked is that they will be cut off from the land while the righteous are heirs of the land. Now for the readers of this psalm, the original hearers, recipients, the land was the promised land in which they were living. It's the place where blessing would happen for them. For us, the land that is promised is the new heaven and the new earth described in Revelation 21, which also describes the prospect of the wicked. Let me read this for you. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But, another one of those buts in the Bible, but this is not a good one for those who are outside of Christ. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is a second death. For the righteous, the land describes a place of safety, security, stability, satisfaction. What the land promised is intended to convey. While the wicked's prospect is described by a lake that burns with fire and sulfur. It represents eternal suffering, insecurity, instability, and no satisfaction. Dying and never dying for all eternity. I have a friend here today, my friend Greg over here, one of my faith brothers. He was out on Lake Superior, Lake Michigan. Which one? Lake Superior. On a boat in a storm. And almost died. Think of insecurity, instability. That's the life of the wicked. And more than that, that's the prospect of the wicked. But the righteous have safety and stability and security. That's the promise of land. That's what you find on land. That's what we have promised to us.
Friends, as we face the overwhelming circumstances of life, I invite you to find your hope, your security, your stability, your satisfaction, your peace, your joy, your security in the one and only solid rock, Christ. Get the vertical perspective. Don't give in to the ways of the wicked. If you walk away with one thing today, or shall I say four things, may them be these. Trust in the Lord. Delight in the Lord. Commit to the Lord your way and wait for the Lord. He has your back. He will rescue you. He has a wonderful plan for you. He will never forsake you, no matter what circumstances, no matter what circumstances you find yourself in. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, your word is clear. Your word is comforting. Your word can set the course for how we walk through the circumstances of life. We have heard it this morning. I trust our hearts have been enriched and encouraged. May we live our lives as the righteous people that you have made us to be for your honor and glory, and yes, even for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.